0: Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to Signal, a podcast powered by Consensus, where we will be sharing the most captivating stories and interviews from Ethereum insiders. In this episode, we're very excited to host Michael Senna, CEO and co-founder of 3Box. Welcome, Michael. I'm so excited to have you here today to talk about Web3, to talk about identity, to talk about the projects that you're working on and really explore them. Michael is the founder of 3Box Labs, uh, which is working on the ceramic network and has been involved in the decentralized web uh, since really its beginning. So I'm super excited to have this conversation about how the technology of the decentralized web overlaps with the people that are actually using it. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Lex. It's great to be here.
0: Absolutely. So I really want to anchor us in these core topics of identity and Web3 that are at the core of a lot of what you're working on. Can you tell us just at a very high level how you've got into the space and what attracted you to this particular problem set?
1: Well, I guess it started back in 2015, when I first read the Ethereum white paper, obviously was aware of Bitcoin through previous work and endeavors. But once I read that, the new capabilities offered by Ethereum just sort of opened up a whole bunch of new possibilities and new potential for implementation on, you know, a bunch of crazy ideas that I was having at the time. Like I was a consultant and I was working on a project and it was really around personalization on the web. And we really sort of had this crazy idea, like what if you could just arrive at a site or an app and that app already knew who you were and you were able to bring your data with you and that site sort of immediately bended its user experience to you. And it felt like, you know, you've used this site for a long time, even though you were a first time user. And so once we started to think about all the new capabilities offered by some of these next generation decentralized platforms, some of these ideas didn't seem so crazy anymore. And so that's sort of when I committed full time to sort of helping to solve this problem of how do we give users better control over their data and portability of their data, which really comes down to identity.
0: So if I'm just going to be Cute for a little bit. You know, when I arrive on Facebook or TikTok or Gmail, those websites know very well who I am. Not only do they know who I am in terms of my credentials, but they know how I think. They have a digital twin of me based on machine learning to figure out exactly how to wrap user experiences and personalization and features and so on around me. When you're talking about data and identity, and when you're talking about this person that arrives to a website, what exactly do you mean? And how is it different from what I've just described?
1: So it really is about pretty much the, the democratization of that capability. So, you know, the apps you mentioned are, you know, mega monoliths and, you know, they they can spend a ton of resources scraping the web for all of your metadata that may be leaked about you online. So they could make their best attempt at trying to personalize your first touch experience with their product. And many developers just don't have the resources or capabilities to do that. And, you know, there's this common problem where you arrive at an app and you're you're kind of staring at a blank canvas and and now the app is during the onboarding process asking you to fill in all this information. Like if you onboarded Twitter, for example, you know, they say, which accounts do you want to follow and what are your interests? And In all of these things, they're asking you to input this data so they can start to build a model of your likes and interests so they can offer you better recommendations and personalize your experience. And the real difference here is that in a world where you can bring your data with you or bring your, your digital twin with you from site to site or platform to platform, you, know, you really don't have those onboarding experiences anymore because you know, they're able to access that data that you may have inputted on a different site, but use it for the user experience within their own product. And so you know, I think it, it's, it's sort of twofold. It's on one side, eliminating the onboarding experiences altogether, but at the same time, sort of leveling the playing field between all the apps in the world and the big monoliths. So apps begin to specialize and compete and and it's more of an like an open environment for innovation where it's not just restricted to those with massive budgets.
0: I think there is a a symmetric or adjacent argument too around control and ownership. And I think if you look at a lot of the studies done on this Faustian bargain that people have made between giving the Facebook monopoly or the Google machine giving over their data and saying, sure take my data and i will enjoy your free products generally speaking the value of that data at every individual level is is quite small you know so it's $3 per year $6 per year so at the margin it doesn't really make a difference but when you take that collectively across every single user across the billions of people that are using these very large apps it becomes you know this this huge value which almost restructures the technology economy and what we're talking about here is instead of a world where there's a data locker inside of Google with your Google account or a data locker inside of you know the the Twitter social graph with all of your personality packaged up in there and you having to kind of port that out of the different companies we're really talking about a human being having control over their footprint, right? How do you think about that mental shift? And do people understand the difference between kind of a data locker inside of a giant tech firm versus what it means to own your own data and identity?
1: Yeah, that's the correct model, one that we often use. And I guess to sort of simplify, you can think about it, I guess today, you know, there's a world where Twitter or Google, or any of these products are effectively just a monolith, where You have the application interface, so the the thing you use and interact with and touch on the screen. And then there's this whole data backend. And on Twitter, you you have to log in with Twitter. And so they're controlling your identity on their server, and they're storing your data on their server. And it's their property in this sense. And what we really want to do here is just separate the data layer from the application layer in the same way that blockchains have separated the financial layer from the application layer. You know, like you can go to Zerion or Zapper and you still see your finances and all of your positions across the blockchain because that data doesn't live on their servers. It lives publicly in the same way you would expect data to behave. So, you know, it's like now you let people just create thin interfaces and they sort of are all building on top of the same data layer. And as far as what users need to be aware of, I think it really depends on the implementation. I think early in the development of the concept of decentralized identity, there was this heavy focus on, what well, we need to give users the tools and users are going to be the way that this will gain traction. They're going to demand to own their identity and data. And while I think that has legs, I think the more appropriate approach is to think about it from the developer perspective. How can we make it super dead simple to just build awesome Products and applications with as little work as possible. So how can we empower developers to get to market more quickly or to onboard users faster or to you know do any of these things that are traditionally the hard parts of developing a product and by flipping it to, to solving needs for developers while in the process also being better for users. That's like, I think the design space that, you know, the decentralized identity world is moving to. And really at the end of the day, users don't need to know much about their decentralized identity or how they're owning and controlling their data. I think these things can be really integrated where really all the user needs to know is, you know, maybe they get a pop-up and it says, This site wants to access your personal data, yes or no. And and that's about the extent that people need to know and manage. Because if we're forced into a world where users have to spend effort worrying about what's happening to their data. I think, you know, there are a small subset of people that would be interested in that, but I think that would, you know, be far away from the mainstream solution that will get us the most adoption.
0: Yeah, I think there's definitely this public goods problem for for the individual where there's a little bit of benefit of control, but then there's this huge invisible cost. And then when you accrue all the costs, you have some pretty wild externalities that we've seen in the form of market structure, information abuse, and so on. I want to talk to you about kind of Web3 and protocols, and especially the point around Building for developers feels very much like what a protocol is for. But before going there, I just wanted to do one more pass at the word identity. So we've talked about data, we've talked about the sort of data lockers that Twitter and the large tech firms and you know Facebook have in order to customize their applications around you. But how do you think about identity? Like, what is identity? What are the elements of which it is composed? From where does it gather power? You know, what what sort of defines that for you?
1: I like to think about identity. Digital identity is very hard and abstract because people use the term so loosely and to apply to so many different things. But if you go down this path with me, you know, identity, if you think about it pretty abstractly in the real world, you know, some people might say, oh, well, it's your government-issued ID card and that's your one identity. But I would argue that it's something much more fundamental. Identity is sort of this emergent property that that is hard to sort of put bounds around because it really is just the entire universe of data that is associated to me as a person or any other entity like a business or an object even and you know that data in the real world is sort of held in people's brains in the form of reputation so every time you interact with someone on the street and you have a conversation. You're each sort of storing a memory of what that interaction was, and that sort of helps to inform that other person's understanding of your identity. And that can continue to extend, and you can obviously build on that framework and take it as far as you want. But what that means in the digital world is pretty similar, that an identity consists of two primary parts. It has this identifier, so this unique set of characters or numbers, and it identifies a subject so only you or you know your mobile phone or a business and no one else in the world has that same identifier and then it sort of consists of all of the data associated to that identifier and that's really broad because you know identity sort of needs to be that general because it's really hard to sort of shoehorn the entire universe of identity solutions into like one strict framework so when you really think about it you know your identity is effectively this collection of data about you and in the digital sense you know it might be a digital passport issued by a government that is associated to your identifier or it may be the tweets you make or the posts you post on a forum or your social graph, or your basic profile information. And all of these things, you know, make up your identity. And it's not just like verifiable data issued by a government or by some service, but rather it's just, you know, some people call it digital exhaust. All the data you generate as a product of interacting with others online is really a part of your identity. And so when you simplify the framework down, it just becomes a question of how do you associate all of this data from all of these apps to your unique identifier in a way that allows others to discover it in the easiest possible way. So if you go to a brand new app, they can just easily look up your data or request permission to data that they can't see, so private or public, and that sort of forms the basis of a digital identity. Sort of by design, very generic and somewhat abstract because, in a way, identity is also those things.
0: Yeah. So it's both the the motions that you make digitally, as well as the credentialing or sort of signaling that you get from your participation in the physical world and in institutions and so on. So this this shift is really happening because of how Web3 is architected, right? Where Web2 is the, the high-tech firms that we know with the data locker analogy, how do you think about what Web3 is and what it does and how it clicks into these concepts that you've described?
1: So when I think about Web3, I really think it's it's a way to give users or participants in any sort of a system more agency and ownership in that system and more direct peer-to-peer control over their own destiny in some way. And you know that, that's a really powerful concept. And the technology that enables this shift are truly decentralized and open networks. So networks that don't live on a server. They're actually public goods that live natively on the internet, so to speak, that can be accessed by anyone anywhere. And these new platforms really enable this new world because now I have a place to store my index of data associations if you will and, and if you want to call that your personal data locker you can because it really shouldn't matter where the data is actually stored it can be stored anywhere but it's really about discovery of that data and agency over that data so permissioning of who can see what when and web 3 is web 3 is the way that this can be achieved you know there's a lot of different ways you can actually go about implementing it but but fundamentally the innovation here are platforms that enable truly open source information or open source resources that every other platform or application can simply tap into. And that's sort of the basis of this paradigm shift.
0: Yep. And, you know, I, th- I think we, at least on this podcast before, have articulated the story about digital assets and how digital scarcity allows for markets and financial exchange and economies to sprout. And we're currently going through a mini renaissance in digital objects that are pulling creators in to, to build things that you can use decentralized finance around and for and and use that kind of market infrastructure. And so what you're talking about adds a richness to these applications and interactions with these systems that, you know, that humanize them from sort of these pixelated toys almost into something that feels a lot more like The type of web experience that we're used to. Is that the right approach into the thinking? Like, you needed to have some forward development on the underlying economy of Web3 before decentralized identity would get pulled in and become a feature of it? Like, how do you think about the sequence of, of adoption? And maybe that's even a way to explore your journey from founding Uport to now 3Box and the ceramic network and kind of how your practical implementation of these ideas has changed as. The decentralized web has changed?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question and one that we could spend a ton of time on because there have basically been an infinite number of learnings uh, on this journey towards decentralized identity. But I think you're right. Like early on in Web3, you know, we had some platforms that let developers build new types of applications and and those were really around building on an open value exchange system so or an open financial system like ethereum or bitcoin or some of these smart contracting platforms which are really designed to exchange value or assets and so developers took those tools and ran with them you know they started experimenting and building things. And a lot of the dApps in Web3, you really broke it down were just a very thin interface on top of a smart contract or two. And the rest of the user experience was built around interacting with that contract. And now you've seen that mature a bit into it. Now you can create an NFT and you could trade NFTs And as one example. But when you're thinking about building a full fledged application there, there's so much more to it than just the actual exchange of an asset or some value. And really, we're trying to build a complementary infrastructure to that financial system, where now you have a full stack to build a completely decentralized application with user-owned identity and open source data and open source finance. And I think it's really just an evolution on this trend that we've seen since, you know, open source software, which was enabled by Git's distributed version control system, which actually gave rise to this whole new world of open source software, and you you can just take code, fork it, tweak it, remix it. And that's sort of the way the world is moving now. And blockchains were sort of the second evolution of that, where now you have a blockchain with double spend protection. So now you can add open source finance to your application. And really, this third wave of the distributed web is really going to be around open source information, including identity that's going to be you know that missing component that really lets apps and dapps turn the corner to go fully mainstream while sort of Staying true to the promise of Web3 and making it, like we said before, easier for people to build what they want to build because they can remix information in the same way that they could remix assets on Ethereum or software on GitHub. And as far as the journey that it took for us to get here, I mean, I think unsurprisingly, we were really early to this space. You know, for some context, we were, well, during my time as a co founder of Uport, which was the first identity project really that was built on. At the time, next generation decentralized technology, which was Ethereum, you know, we were the first ones to implement social recovery. So sort of assigning a couple of your friends as you know delegates for your private key. So if you ever lost your private key, you could just ask a couple friends and they can help you recover it. We were also a co founder of the Decentralized Identity Foundation called Diff, which has now exploded and sort of become one of these shelling points for collaboration on decentralized identity standards. And we're one of the contributors to the first version of the DID specification, which is this specification for decentralized identifiers. So a lot has evolved since then and matured, both in how to conceive of identity and the technical platforms upon which you can deploy decentralized identity and how it fits into people's applications. And so this I can spend years on pretty much talking about, but I would say that the goal has really remained the same. The approach and the tools to enable it have definitely evolved and it It's it's an exciting time where we're at now. It feels like everything's coming together and the time is right for decentralized identity to finally arrive. And yeah, that's what we're working towards.
0: What were some of the hypotheses or some of the things that you did early with Uport that is in that set of infinite learnings that were ideas at the time, but didn't end up working out and that you've learned from? Like, how has that um, changed over time?
1: So I think just to name a few, I mean, with Uport, we were really designing for the end user you know we were like everyone will have this digital wallet on their cell phone and when they want to log into a site they you know scan a qr code with their cell phone and they use touch id or their fingerprint or some pin on their phone and that's how they'll log into an app and you know that that is not really how it played out like i think uport bundled a lot of things together so it bundled login it bundled digital identifier it bundled data storage and data formatting and verifiable credentials, like all into one package, which if you wanted to build with Uport, you had to build in this particular way. And we sort of saw Web3 decouple all of these components. So now you have, you know, MetaMask or Taurus or Fortmatic slash magic link, and all of these login authentication wallets have taken on their own path and an identity is really a separate piece of infrastructure. So sort of forcing developers into one particular implementation was, you know, not in retrospect, a great move. At the time, you know, the industry was so new, really the only wallet was MetaMask and things were so different. The lines had not been clearly delineated between the different layers, which gets a bit complicated. But, you know, I think if you want to be maximally interoperable, you have to sort of take this layered approach rather than being this all in one monolith. And so that was one or a few baked in there. And like I hinted at before, you know, solving for users versus solving for developers, like any sort of decentralized identity system needs to be super general, generalized in how it's designed so it can work with the maximum number of use cases because everyone's needs for identity are a little different. And it's really hard to like shoehorn them all into one rigid structure. and Giving developers a reason to add decentralized identity because it gives them and their app new superpowers versus relying on the ideological, you should be giving your users control of their identity. Approach, which sure some apps may, may be on board with, but a lot of them just want to create better products. And lastly, in Uport, we focused a lot on verifiable credentials. So it was more like a data locker on your phone for your digital passport or your proof that you work at a company or like, like sort of data issued by some service that's like digitally signed and verifiable. And that's such a small subset of identity. Like really identity is all the things we said before, like your social graphs, all your blog posts, your profiles, Mm. like your content that you're generating all over the web and Uport just wasn't designed to handle that.
0: Yeah, I I really like the point around horizontal protocols and that if you you build something that is interoperable with everything else, and it's the work of the developer to draw these components together around the practical use case or problem that, that a user has. And by being open source and by being interoperable with the major components of these apps and these experiences, you just have a much, much larger market than if you were to say, we're going to have a walled garden and it's going to be vertically integrated and we control the experience from from start to finish. And I think we've seen that with the stacking of the decentralized finance protocols. We've seen that with the emergence of the digital objects and NFTs. And I think it's also really interesting as it relates to the banking industry, which really has trouble with models like this. And so I want to double click on ceramic and this thought around going horizontal and and being integratable. So can you talk a little bit about what does that protocol look like, what are its attributes, and what type of engagement you're seeing in the sort of the early days of, of the development?
1: Yeah, so building on that layered protocol, layered stack, approach and framework. Although we've spent most of our time talking about decentralized identity, ceramic is not explicitly a decentralized identity protocol. It's a platform for decentralized data computation and mutability. So ceramic basically takes immutable files stored on IPFS and persisted, you know, in any of the other web three persistence networks like Filecoin, RWE, or SIA, and it takes those immutable static IPFS files and turns them into dynamic mutable data structures. So, you know, you can have, for example, like a a profile that you update your name and avatar and and image and description a bunch of times. And in a completely permissionless way, Ceramic validates those updates to what we call streams. So each Ceramic object is a, a stream and Ceramic does the data processing to transform that object into a new state and then sort of keeps track of that state. So you can think of each ceramic stream as its own blockchain or as its own ledger. So ceramic is really like a network of independent mutable ledgers or data structures. And this primitive is really powerful because, you know, if you think of the D-Web stack or sort of like the non-financial Web3 stack, you have these storage protocols at the bottom. And then on top of it, you have IPFS, which is the data encoding naming layer. And then on top of that, you have ceramic, which is the compute and state management system for building apps with database-like capabilities. Or if you're doing anything on the D-Web and you're storing any kind of data that's not just a static image or a static object, you want to add trustless dynamism to that object, you would use ceramic. And that's a really powerful layer. And it's also worth noting that every transaction Action in Ceramic right now is authenticated by, you guessed it, it's a decentralized identifier. So DID, one of those things we talked about earlier. So now you have a way for users to directly store and manage and update their data with no database servers or independent from any application. So sort of a platform that enables this open source information that can easily be accessed by all different applications or organizations to simplify the sharing of it. And with the protocol like ceramic, we've built on top of it a standard called IDX. And IDX is really this identity standard that we've basically been outlining. It's a way to associate any kind of data to a DID, including a profile, a social graph, accounts from different layer one or layer two blockchain networks, You know, your Twitter account, your GitHub account, and all of this application data. You can associate it to a DID. And because it lives permissionlessly on ceramic, users can update it, applications can add to it, and applications can use it as the single point of discovery for the entire universe of data about that user. And so, you know, you can really think of IDX as a user-centric, completely decentralized replacement for application user cables. You know, if you're building an app in Web2, you traditionally will have some sort of database where you have a user table and that user table has the user's identifier, the UID for your specific application and all of like the links to other databases where maybe their blog posts are stored or their social graph is stored or, you know, their profile data is stored. And the user table really just manages the location of that other data. So in your system, you can find it. And IDX kind of turns that on its head. It says, well, now every application doesn't need to manage their own user table, and their own user ID. Now every application can collaborate on a single user table controlled by the user. And that sort of forms the basis for how data can truly be decoupled from applications and can be made interoperable. We like to think of IDX to ceramic is effectively what ERC-20 was to Ethereum. ERC 20 is obviously a standard for how you create a fungible token on Ethereum, and that really gave rise to the whole first wave of use cases of this new platform. And sort of that narrative still sticks today. Like, Ethereum is largely known as the DeFi platform or the financial platform. And that has been around since pretty much the beginning. And likewise, IDX is this standard and is really the way that a lot of early developers are are using ceramic. And it just shows the power of when, when you actually create good standards on top of flexible open infrastructure, what can happen?
0: Fascinating stuff. It's really compelling. And also your explanation is quite technical in a couple of places. And so I just want to open up some of of the words like one more time so that I, with a more naive point of view on it, can understand. So, you know, you've used the word mutable and immutable, and I, I think that's an important one for listeners to understand. And you've also talked about the D web and sort of decentralized applications outside of DeFi. And so, you know, just kind of the point is there's IPFS where you've got your files, plainly speaking. And then is ceramic playing the role of transformation functions between those files? Like, can you just go through? Through that one more time maybe as if i'm five or as if i'm three yeah
1: i was gonna say challenge accepted yeah it it is a little bit technical because it is you know really a platform that is still sort of it plays at the very technical layer but effectively what you said is right so ipfs combined with storage layers so like where the files are actually stored the decentralized file system is really good for storing static files but you're right ceramic basically Built on top of that file system and allows for you know the transformation of data from here's my single file and it will be like this forever, which is sort of what immutable means. Means it can't change. And ceramic takes these files that can't change and turns them into objects that can change. And when things change, the challenge is how do you trust that the thing I'm seeing or observing at any point in time is the correct state so when things change it means that the state changes and in order to do this in a fully decentralized way you basically need a network protocol that does decentralized computation of these changes but also tracks the state so tracks these changes in a transparent and verifiable way so anyone that's consuming data from ceramic can trust beyond a shadow of a doubt that what they're getting back is the correct version of this thing. And so it really it, it, like borders on database capabilities. We, we've sort of stopped short of comparing ceramic to a database because in reality, it's a bit lower level, like each ceramic stream, each object in ceramic that consists of all of these files, you can use it sort of as a database or as like a NoSQL store, document. It's a JSON document that you can update, but you can also do so much more with it. So it's sort of a bit more primitive than a database by design because you can do much more. But generally speaking, it's a way to change files that were designed to not be changed and be able to do that in a fully decentralized context, which hasn't really been done yet. Yeah. Um, this is like a missing piece for the Web3 stack.
0: Yeah. And it's puts into the commons <laughs> the, the ability to build software. Uh, so it's leads to a lot of really interesting ideas and possibilities for the types of things that can now be built that have data that have persistent data that wrap things around users who have a history and who exist digitally and who have done things. And those things have meaning, you know, and and you can compute that in whatever app you build with whatever judgment you have. You know, And so I want to end on a little bit of a futuristic forward-looking thought about another buzzword or another exciting thing in the decentralized ecosystem, which is that a lot of these kind of individual symptoms of non-fungible tokens and crypto art and these digital spaces like crypto voxels and the markets that have developed in DeFi, these are all really just small parts, small Lego pieces of... Of a much larger thing, which people like to call the metaverse. And we've talked about the metaverse before on this podcast with the idea that it's a fully digital environment that is largely functional. And we know that large traditional companies like Epic, raising a billion dollars from Sony, Fidelity, and others are working on metaverses. And you know there's lots of IP kind of attached to that. We know bottoms up. The developers in our community have built really amazing projects that people can inhabit. How do you see the the work that you're doing that anchors history and actions and meaning to to people and gives them back their identity? How do you see that enabling this this next generation of projects? And how will we inhabit these environments if? the protocol and the capabilities that you're talking about become mainstream? I love this question.
1: So I guess we can break down the metaverse. And and this is just generally how we think about it. So if the internet is built on web three protocols and decentralized technologies, it all becomes the metaverse. So it's a bit paradoxical for me to hear you say that these companies are trying to, to build their own metaverse projects, because those metaverses will always be a subset of the larger metaverse, which is basically the internet. And we haven't had that now. We've had an internet of silos where each application is its own sort of, if you want to use the same language, its own metaverse or a universe. And those universes don't talk to each other. You're a different person and you have to recreate data in each universe. And now what these blockchains have done is you can think of Ethereum right now as its own metaverse or you could think of different blockchain networks as their own metaverse and we're starting to see these metaverses bridge where now you have the ability to transfer assets between different metaverses and what the addition of capabilities like provided by ceramic and idx and decentralized identity really means that now users can travel the metaverse and you know use the same identity in all of these currently sort of siloed metaverses like ethereum that ecosystem is a metaverse there's a bunch of different ones and because you can have an identity that lives independent from any of them, and data that lives independent from any of them. You really have this unified experience wherever you go, your data follows you, it's never lost, and your identity enables that. And so we sort of see it as really being one of the foundational elements needed to unlock this metaverse beyond one of assets to to one of a truly more fully functional internet metaverse rather than a financial metaverse. And yeah, to me, they're pretty indispensable, these technologies. It's exciting to already see the types of experimentation going on by people in ceramic. You know, there are a few different projects now that are using ceramic as decentralized identity infrastructure for metaverse projects. You know, one of them is called MetaGame, another one's SourceCred, and they're basically doing exactly this. And so it's definitely an exciting time. And we're just beginning to scratch the surface on what is possible with a metaverse. But sort of I can almost guarantee that a metaverse will be bigger than any specific metaverse project. If that makes
0: sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's this is such an awesome space, the fact that it's so open and interoperable and people can just get going and build these fantastical projects. I mean, it's it's really inspirational and you can see it being built sort of brick by brick over time and more and more possibilities open up as new layers get locked into the foundation. And the forward momentum is only forward in the sense that, you know, the more software you add to the stack, the more potential things it can do and it can envelop. So thank you so much for exploring these ideas. We've gone on a great journey from what is identity to how the metaverse will be composed of decentralized identity and and the protocols on which it travels. Really uh, great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much.
1: Yeah, thanks, Lex. This is a great conversation.
0: A big thank you to our listeners for joining today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Keep the conversation going by following us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Discord, all at Consensus. Reach out, ask questions, and suggest who you'd like to see featured in future episodes. To learn more about the topics discussed today, see our blog at consensus.net slash blog and subscribe to our weekly Signal newsletter.